You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey everybody, if you're interested in learning how to leverage LinkedIn for your business, this episode is sponsored by my book, The 7 Habits of Highly Successful LinkedIn Users. To get your free copy, just send a text to 44222 with the word 7 Habits. That's the number 7 Habits to 44222. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is David Cancel, and he's the CEO of Drift, which is a leading conversation-driven marketing and sales platform that helps companies book more meetings and close more deals. David's the former chief product officer at HubSpot and now serial entrepreneur with five startups under his belt. He's also the co-host of the Seeking Wisdom podcast. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, Dennis, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on the show and uh, to chat today. Yeah, I'm so excited you're here. We had to reschedule this a couple of times because you're a super busy guy. So I truly appreciate you being here today. And we're going to talk a little bit about your, you know, your entrepreneurial journey, but we're going to hone a little bit more in, you know, how you've been so successful at, at starting, funding and growing Drift. But before we do that, give us just a little bit of a background. You have a really interesting background. I mean, you've been in corporate You've got a bunch of startups. They've been, you know, a lot of a lot of different software companies. Tell us a one or two minute story about how you got here, and then we'll dive right in. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I grew up in New York City. My parents emigrated here. I learned how to speak English. I originally only knew how to learn speak Spanish. I learned speaking English watching TV, and uh, and then you know my parents worked for themselves, which sounds glamorous, but you know wasn't. And uh, but I that inspired me. You know, gave me my work ethic and sent me down this path of wanting to always start a business, although I had no idea what that meant, right? At, when I was growing up, that was not a popular concept. Even in my, you know, my college years, entrepreneur was like a four-letter word. It kind of meant, you know, you can't get a job, right? And it wasn't popularized till many years later. But then, you know, I dropped out of college kind of in my senior year because I was kind of bored and I became obsessed with the internet. We got the early internet access through Mosaic and then later Netscape in the library. So I spent all day, every day, just surfing the web and creating websites and doing all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of the rabbit hole that never ended. I then joined a small little three-person startup in New York City. And this is a long time ago now. That grew into three pretty good-sized companies. I then moved to Boston, started my first company, Compete. And here I am five companies later. I've been obsessed with learning throughout that. And that's really what's driven me to start these companies. That's amazing. So five different startups. So, and and you mentioned when you were back in college, you know, the whole entrepreneurial career and thought process, it was very, very different. It was the same way with me. I graduated from college in 1992. And when, if you said you were an entrepreneur back then, it just meant you couldn't get a job and then no one, (laughs) no one, you tried to get hired by everybody, but nobody hired you. So you figured, Hey, I'm going to throw up a shingle and try to sell some people stuff. Yeah, but, I try to tell people that now and they, they don't understand. It. I'm like entrepreneur kind of meant loser, right? Like it meant you couldn't get a real job. Right. Yep. And I remember when I told my family that, you know, I was after graduating from college with a pre-law degree, 
that I was going to go and start a business. And they looked at me <laughs> like I had a big green eyeball sticking out of the middle of my forehead. And, and my mother was, you know, after it sunk in a little bit, she kind of was like, very, they were very supportive, but at first they were just totally shocked. They were like, mm. you know, so, so I totally feel for you there and I totally resonate your background there. So congrats on all the success. Do us a quick, do us a quick favor here and tell us what you got going on over there at Drift. Tell us a little bit about Drift and how that came to play. Sure thing. So I've started these four other companies that I mentioned before, and then one of them led me to become chief product officer at HubSpot. So I've been kind of building software for marketing and salespeople for 20 years. And right before starting Drift, I was looking at all the changes that were happening in the world, just the way that we communicate, how messaging was normal, and we all use messaging and how we all wanted real time everything and everything on demand. And basically, the world had radically changed from all the other companies that had started. Back then, the company had all all the control, could make the prospect or the customer jump through hoops. And now we were living in this world where everyone was a buyer and the buyers had all the control. But yet, if I looked at all the sales and marketing software, including the, the ones that I had built in the past, all of them are built for this world from before where the company has all this control. And so I wanted to start Drift to basically match the way that we want to buy today. Because I think in the future, there won't be any difference between B2B buying and B2C buying because now we've gone from a world of specialized buyers, i.e. procurement or CIO or CMO to everyone inside of companies buying. So how big is, how big is Drift today? If you can give me a little bit of a sense, whether it's sure. revenue or employees or growth, how do you want to frame that? You know, we're 200, we'll end this year around 250 employees will be with three offices, Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco will probably be, we'll be definitely north of 400 by the end of 19. And to give you a sense of the growth rate, we, in 2017, we, we were 20 people. In 20, the beginning of this year, 2018, we started the year just under 90 people. So it gives you a sense of the pace that we're growing at. And, you know, we benchmark ourselves a lot and so far from a revenue standpoint, which we don't release, we're faster, we're growing faster than most of the B2B SaaS companies that you would have heard of, whether it's Workday, Salesforce, uh, Zendesk, et cetera. So what year did you start Drift again? So 17, you had 20 people. What year did you start? Yeah, we started Drift at the end of 14, beginning of 15, but we didn't go into market until April of 16, 2016. Gotcha. So you raised capital for this. I know you've got some venture capital. Tell us yes. a little bit about that. How much have you raised today? As of today, we have raised $107 million, which is a lot of money. <laughs> that is started, a lot of money. We started the company, we raised a lot of money, which was $15 million, and we didn't. We tried not to spend any of it. And since then, you know, we've had um, two rounds of Series B and Series C. Both of them have been preemptive by existing investors. And, you know, we, when, we, when we raised the Series C, which was 60 some odd million, we still hadn't spent the Series B and we still had part of the Series A. And, you know, even to this day, we have most of that, you know, 107 million still in the bank. Wow. Interesting. So let me ask you this. This isn't a normal question I would ask, but because you kind of framed it that way, that you've got most of that money still in the bank or a lot of it, right, mm -hmm. that you raised. Mm -hmm. What would be the primary reason why investors, your existing investors, number one, would want to sell equity when there's yeah. still money in and they would get additional dilution and why the other investors would want to come in when you already hate, when you don't have a lot of need, right? You've got <laughs> mm -hmm, a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's got to be a tough sell unless it's strategic. Tell us, can you talk to yeah, me about that? I, I think, you know, I think it's, it's a great lesson in selling, right? I think, you know, that I use the analogy of dating all the time because that's the easiest one. 
for most people who don't sell. I think it's like dating when you don't, you know, when you don't want to, when you're hard to get more people come after you. Right. And so, you know, we didn't need the money either of the raise at the fundraisers, but when you don't need the money, that's when you get a lot of money, right? It's kind of backwards when you need the money, when you're out there desperate and you need money, no one wants to give you money, right? It's, it's a bizarre, but you know, really from us, it was a consideration of, Hey, we want to build a pillar company. We want to build an enduring company. So we want to take this company public at some point. And because we think that's a milestone on that path. And if we look at SaaS companies and comparables and we benchmark them, we average them out, we get an idea for how much cash those companies have taken to be able to get to that point because SaaS as a category consumes a lot of cash, right? You don't get big lump sum payments like we did in the enterprise days, right? You spread those out equally over months. And so you have to wait a long time to get payback from a sales standpoint. And so we knew how much cash it would consume and we had the insane luxury to be able to work with investors that we have worked with before who have a share our long-term perspective. And because of that, we ended up agreeing to, to take, that, take that additional capital. Wow. So I know you don't disclose revenue, but I'm curious if you do me this favor. Are you mm-hmm. at this point, are you guys north of 10 million, south of 10 million? I mean, you've raised a lot of capital, but you've really only been marketing this thing for a couple of years. Can you give us a sense of that or is that asking too much? We are much beyond that, that okay, great. Uh, amount. Much beyond 10 million. Great. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for trying to hone Multiples. in on that. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Perfect. All right. So that brings me to my next question because you guys are growing really fast and not just employees, not mm-hmm. just your technology, but your customer base and your revenue, right? And, your, and yep. hopefully your profits are right in line too. So what's the number one strategy that you're using today to get new customers for Drift? If you could kind of break down whether it be a platform or strategy mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. could you help us understand that where you're getting most of your new customers today? I'd say it's two places. I think we've deliberately taken an approach which we call do the things that don't scale. So really investing in this idea, which is, you know, that we build these relationships one person at a time, which everyone will balk at and say it doesn't scale. You can't scale that way. It doesn't work. And many of us who have, you know, sold things and long ago know that this works. This is the way that we've always sold things. But, you know, we rush to to want to scale, right, prematurely scale. And so we do things that others won't do because they're hard to measure from a marketing standpoint. The obvious example is going back and doubling down on really curated, really special sort of events that we do. And in these events, we never market drift. We don't talk about our products. This is not a demo. This is not whatever. But we're bringing people together and we're being part of those conversations that are happening. That's an example. We do a big event that we just, we have one coming up in next week, actually, in San Francisco. We call it Hypergrowth. And it is, there's nothing Drift branded about it. It is an event where we bring kind of speakers from the military, from sales and marketing, from sports, from, you know, people who talk about meditation. We talk about all forms of life. Think about it as like a TED conference, a little bit more fun. And we bring people <laughs> together. We, you know, we had, we just had this in uh, like a festival meets TED, right? Like a uh, Coachella meets TED, right? We just had the big, our big one. And this is the second year we're doing it. Two weeks ago in Boston here, we have 4,500 people register for that. We have this one in San Francisco, which is our first ever in San Francisco next week. And that one will be, we have 2,500 people registered for that, which is crazy given that we only started this conference last year. And so we invest in weird things like that. They're hard to measure, hard to scale. And, and the second 
thing that we do is our product is visible on our customers' websites, right? And so when you see it, you know that Drift is being used and that, you know, that leads to a lot of signups. Perfect. So, I mean, I'm sure that is there a version where the Drift branding is not there or is it always available? Yeah. Okay. So you can, you can pay for for that to not be there. Right. Okay. I figured that much. I mean, that's how a lot of SaaS products are these days. Mm-hmm. And hyper growth, that was in Boston. I heard about that. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it, but are you guys planning on doing that again next year up in the Northeast? Yep. Yeah, we'll do it in the Northeast again and we'll see what the numbers, you know, we 4,500 was our 4,000 was our target this year. We did 4,500 and we'll see how big we we go next year. Wow. It's got to be monster trying to manage an event that big. (laughs) So tell me something. It's you're focused on the relationship and you're getting people to this event and you're providing enormous value. But if it ended there, you know, you'd probably get a few customers just because of some of the conversations. But what is it? What do you do after those events that allows you to get an ROI on spending that much energy and money on a big event. Cause those aren't cheap, right? So I mean, oh, no, so not cheap at all. what do you do in the follow-up component to it? I mean, is it really more one-to-one your business development and sales team, just following up with all of the list of registrants and people that attended? Is there, is it more, you know, more complex? What does that look like? Yeah. It's a little different than that than the traditional kind of sales follow-up or, you know, what we do is we continue to, we believe, and I think, you know, a couple of people have said this, but we continue to give, 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 give. And then we kind of feel like we're building this relationship and this equity in the mind of our prospects and customers. And when they think they have a need for what we do, they turn to us, right? And by that time, they felt like they know us so well. And it's kind of an obvious decision. Sometimes call it inception, right? Internally, right? Like it's inception. It's like the movie Inception. Like by the time you think, Drift, you've already know so much about us and are so familiar and have a positive, ideally a positive connotation with us that it makes the sale an inbound sale versus an outbound sale, even though we're doing all of these things to kind of, uh, you know, get into build that relationship and start to build that equity. And so we follow up with them. We follow up with them by giving them more content, more things that we can help, more examples, and we're just giving them more and more. And we also you know, do a lot of storytelling. And the storytelling that we do highlights the problem that we're solving, right? And it almost becomes, you know, they start to tell us the problem back to us, right? When we started, we needed a simple way to explain what we did. And what we said was very simple. We said, look, imagine that your website, your B2B website is a store, right? Because it is a store. Now, would you spend all of your energy doing all of the marketing activities, all the outbound selling, all the prospecting, to drive people back to a store that has no people in it. And your only, your only way that you're going to convert those prospects that you spent all that money for into a customer is to ask them to leave their name, phone number, and some other information on a piece of paper and for them to leave the store and then for your sales team to follow up days, weeks, or even months later and tell them, hey, Dennis, we're ready to sell to you. Come back in the store right? As ridiculous as that sounds, that is state of the art in B2B marketing and sales today. You, whether you use Salesforce, you use whatever tool you want. And by the way, to get that to happen, you need, on average, we see our customers, 30, 40, 50 SaaS applications perfectly synchronized together, a sales team, an, R, uh, an SDR team, a marketing team, all working in perfect harmony to deliver that experience to your prospects. So if you describe that to a normal human, they would think you were crazy. They would laugh. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. I mean, there's, 
doing it the old fashioned way, there's just a lot of friction there, right? You're creating Mm -hmm. a lot of friction for your prospects and potential customers and timing. We all know how important timing is. So I, I definitely see the application of drift. So let me ask you something. What's the primary channel that you're using to follow up? Do you somehow use your technology as a follow-up piece or is it more email or direct mail or phone or I mean, what would be the primary channel where you're delivering ongoing value? First, it's it's our software, but that's only if they come back to the website. So we recognize them. We know who they are. We know what account they're coming from, if they're a prospect. And so we'll follow up with a personalized message for them on our website from the actual AE or SDR who owns that account, right? Not just a random one with their face on it and saying, hi, this is Dennis. Welcome back. Thanks for coming to Hypergrowth. If you have any questions, I'm right here and you can leave me a message. And what the, the prospect likes that because it's personal, the rep likes that because they know that their prospect is never going to go back into generic lead pool, that they're always going to go directly to them and they own that account. And so that's the primary way. Then the secondary ways are we'll reach out via email. We have podcasts just like you have here. So we send them to the podcast. We get them listening to the podcast. We do a lot of uh, video We're on LinkedIn a lot, and so we do a lot of marketing on LinkedIn and Twitter and all the social channels. And so all the places that we think our prospect is going to be, we are there offering content and offering help and ready to continue that relationship. Perfect. No, that that helps clarify for sure. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. That's That's an incredible way to take an event and then not make it all about you and a big commercial and demo, but at the same time, develop those relationships and then nurture them over time to the point where they're ready to buy and you're sitting right there with your, you know, with your product and team ready to go. So I love that. I love that strategy. So we listen to them because, you know, we, people say it's hard to attribute, you know, attribution, especially from a marketing standpoint, how do you know it's going to work? How do you know this is happening? And I say, we listen, we have conversations with these people. And by the way, that is what our software does. And we listen to what they say because they'll say, Hey, I was listening to the podcast with you and Dennis, episode 132, when you talked about XYZ, and they tell us to that detail. They don't say, oh, I think I heard about you on a podcast, or I think I found you on Google. They tell us they ha- we have an intimate relationship by that point, and they tell us exactly why and how they've heard of us. But if I were to explain that, when I explain that to a marketer, they'll tell me, but how do you know it's working? How do you track that? I said, they, I, I just told you. They just told me. They told me exactly how. Yeah, and and they, that's how far we've gone. And they use my technology to tell me. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That's awesome. Oh, All right. Well, listen, let's pivot a little bit. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And you guys are on a crazy trajectory. You've raised a lot of money. You've hired a lot of great people and you've got a lot of great clients and things are looking up. But knowing what you know now, going back to 2014 when you first started, what would you do differently to get further faster with Drift? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. I think the one Good. of our principles, <laughs> one of our principles that we try to live to, but it's hard because uh, we're humans, is that we try to stay close to the customer and we try to prioritize the customer and their needs and their ideas over our own. But we often fail at that. And so I'd say that one thing that I would have done is listen harder to our prospects and to our customers and put away our put aside our opinions on things that we wanted to do or what we cared about. That would have got us to where we are a lot faster. But, you know, we had all, we all have egos. And so that's hard. Yeah. The team gets together and they start brainstorming on all these ideas <laughs> and you've it. got, and you've got all these ideas from your customers, but then all of a sudden everybody wants pride of authorship and a piece of it and they want their idea implemented. So yeah, so 
Totally get that. So listening more would have been one of the things, listening more to your customers and prospects and really just focusing on what they want, not what you wanted internally. That's perfect. All right, great. What's been one of the biggest challenges you've faced in growing Drift to this point? I mean, if you, I mean, there's a new challenge every day, right? I understand that. But what's one that stands out to you since you've launched Drift? I always say that 99% of the problems that we face in business are people problems, and it's 1% everything else. Your sales motion, the, your product, the design, the whatever, all the stuff that we spend time talking about, that's 1%. 99% of the problems are people, and those people are inside the building, right, of your team and hiring, and the people outside the building, your investors, your customers, your community. Those are where things, that's where things are difficult. And so I'd say our number one thing that, you know, has been kind of a speed bump in growth is really hiring and getting people, making people successful on the team, finding the right people, and then training others because we've developed, you know, a way that we do it, training other people that we bring on the team to kind of focus on the right areas versus just trying to hire the job specs, just trying to hire you know, people who say the right things, really spending the time to find the right people on the team who are going to 10x us is the thing that would have got us here faster. Yeah, people is such a difficult component of, <laughs> of growth. You know, I remember I read a book years ago, I can't remember what the title of it was, but um, one of the things in the book that it said that always stuck with me, and this is probably 15 years ago, it said, best actor gets the job. And That's so it. it's really hard to hire really good talent because some people are just really good at interviewing. And unfortunately, it takes you <laughs> it takes you six months to figure out whether they were just full of crap or whether they're the real deal. And that stinks. That makes it really tough to grow. So I, I'd have to agree with you there. For most businesses, I think that's one of the biggest stumbling part, you know, biggest oh, challenges. You, you know, then the better they are at selling, the, the harder it is to interview them, right? So I have a technique where, because they're really, you know, they're really polished. I have a technique where I won't let anyone go on when I know they're on a track, you know, when they're trying to like pitch me during the, even if they don't know that they're doing it, they're trying to sell me, I will, you know, interrupt them and have them go in a totally different track. And so I will break their, the thought process when they go down that track. And everyone does it. That's not only a salesperson, engineers do it and marketing people, and they don't even know that they're doing it. But as soon as I notice they're going on something that feels a little rehearsed, I redirect the conversation. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. Yeah. Break them out of that thought process because they've already lined it up. They've got it all played out. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. you just throw a curveball in there and see if they can hit it. If they, <laughs> if they hit it, well, then we then we keep going. If they don't, well. Exactly. <laughs> perfect. Bingo. No, Bingo. I love that. I love that. All right. Great. Well, listen, we're going to wrap it up here. But in uh, next couple of questions, give me, um, do rapid fire if you would. What's your favorite growth tool or software besides Drift? Hmm. My favorite. WhatsApp which is a messaging app. So another messaging app. We use it a lot internally to communicate with the senior team here. Perfect. All right. WhatsApp. I'll add that to the show notes. And what's one book that you would highly recommend to my audience? Oh, I'm a book crazy person. So number one book, which I reread five times now, is called Made in America and is the autobiography of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. Everyone go out and buy that. It's a $6 book that will return much to you. Perfect. Well, listen, I really appreciate it, David, you being here today. Let everybody know how they can connect with you, learn a little bit more about Drift, and then we'll close it out for today. Sure. So Drift is D-R-I-F-T dot com. And uh, I am D Cancel on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, on everything. So if you want to connect with me, I'm easy to find David Cancel and Drift is equally as easy. Perfect. Listen, thank you so much for being here. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Uh, take care, Dennis. Thanks. 
Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.